This is my remarkable writing pad. I absolutely love it. It has changed my life. I use it every day. I don't have notepads anymore. It's amazing. But <laughs> I kid you not, this is the third Sunday, right before the message, that it's glitched out. So I, I, had to go, I had to go print my notes and read out of an actual Bible. So we're going to have to go back. I don't know if the Lord is telling me something. Yeah, it's not working. Weird, huh? The third time. Yay. So I don't know. Maybe Remarkable is owned by Elon Musk, and Elon Musk is the Antichrist or something. Maybe that's what's going on. Doesn't want me to... Here we go. Here we go. All right. Well, this is the last Sunday of Revelation, and it, it, the series didn't go quite as I planned. I wanted it just to give us a better understanding and a survey of the actual book and how to approach the book, but I ended up getting very topical instead, you know, using the book, which I think that that's what God wanted me to do. And so... We're going to wrap it up today. I'll give you a little bit of a bird's eye view and maybe even how to approach the book. And then, yes, we'll get topical once again. So, yeah, yeah, kind of getting two sermons. Um, as you know, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And what we've learned so far, it is full of imagery and symbolism and it's very vivid and graphic at times. It can come off as kind of scary. And it, it almost seems like it doesn't even belong in the Bible. Like when you're reading the Gospels and you're reading all these encouraging stories and then you read this, this stuff about the end times, like it doesn't necessarily, this feel like it doesn't, doesn't fit. But what I want to show you is that it 100% fits, and it's actually all connected, and it's important that we get that. The, in context, when we started this series off, we made the point that this book was written like an email, like a letter to seven specific churches. And what we learned is that those churches had different personalities and different character traits and different things that they were struggling with. And, and John the Revelator calls them out on some things, and he actually admonishes them, but he encourages them at the same time. He gives them a, a stroke and a poke. He says, you guys are doing this great, but you're not doing this so good. And so in its context, the book was written for a specific audience. But if we look at that audience, we could say, yeah, I think we're that church. Yeah, we, we have some of that, and we have some of that. And so it directly applies to us. And then all of this other prophetic stuff, there's a number of things that, were, that have not come to be yet. And when you watch the news and when you see things unfolding, you're like, this, this is fascinating. This is exciting, maybe scary. It's like... The Jews are going to, they're, they're going to build that temple. Like, what is going on? And so it's a very exciting book. Now, 
Um, I'm not going to get into the weeds and all the different horns and trumpets and bulls and monsters and prophets and false prophets and witnesses, and I'm not going to get into that. But what I want to show you today, actually visually, is that the book fits. Like There's a reason why this testament, this revelation about who Jesus is, why it's, why it's in this book, why it's considered a holy book, is because it's connected. And then once again, it's the only book that says if you read this and you know, take a stab at it and understand it, you will be blessed. It's such an amazing book. So um, I have a picture I want to show you. Let's put up that picture. All right, that's, yeah, we need to bring the lights down way low. Let's bring these down too because it's kind of hard to see. And it's like, what in the world's going on? Are you showing us some more modern art, Pastor Josh? It's not modern art. Okay, grab your Bibles if you brought your Bible. I brought mine because my computer Bible doesn't work anymore. <laughs> and you have your text right here, yeah? And then in my study Bible, I have all of these little tiny uh, references, scripture references, in the column of my Bible. And you might have that too. Some of you have it in the middle. Um, and then some of you might even have notes down here at the bottom. And so what's amazing about the Bible, and of course Revelation, is that it's all linked. And it's all reference upon reference. So what you're looking at here is the Bible. It's kind of cool, huh? It's the Bible from Genesis. This is Genesis. These little white squiggly lines down here, this is the book of Genesis. This is Exodus. This is Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc. Uh, I believe that this one is Psalms. The Gospels are in here. And then this is the book of Revelation. And all of these really pretty rainbow arches are cross-references. This is the very first piece of literature that's hypertext. It's all connected. And so the longer the arch, the further back the connection goes. There are 65,000 direct reference quotes throughout the whole Bible. That is just referencing word for word a scripture quote. So, like if you were to go in the middle and look at Psalms, I had a picture, I should have brought it, but should have put it up there. But Psalms just kind of bursts and goes both ways. It's really cool. This is one very good reason to be fascinated with your Bible because, again, it's unique. There's no other, there is no other piece of literature in the world that's, that's hyperlinked like this. It's the first hyperlinked text. So, you know, when you go and Google and you're clicking on links and stuff, well, the Bible did it first. Amen. And so what I want to highlight is that this last book of the Bible, Revelation, it's, of course, there's arches that connect specifically to the Gospels because John the Revelator knew, I believe that he knew Jesus. I believe that he was one of the apostles. Some don't. It's not that big of a deal. Um, 
not worth fighting about. We've got better things to fight about than who wrote the book of Revelation. But it's connected specifically into the Gospels, and then there's a lot of references to the book of Daniel. There's a lot of book references to the book of Isaiah. There's a lot of references to the book of Ezekiel. Direct connections, direct quotes. And so my purpose in showing you this is that in order to, unfortunately, in order to understand Revelation, you need to understand the full context of the Scriptures. I had a, a few years ago, I read Revelation uh, while camping from cover to cover, just the book of Revelation, and I read it straight without, you know, trying to connect all the dots. And it was good, but at the same time, it was a little confusing. You have to, you have to when you read Revelation, you need to start turning pages. You need to, you need to do this. And so uh, we're going to do a little bit of that right now because the beauty of the book, it is the revelation of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ do? He came to redeem us. He came to set us free. He came to save us. He came to adopt us into his family. He came to do warfare to undo the works of the devil, the kingdom of God here and now. So this is fascinating stuff. So, so now let's just look at this graphic the, from the beginning to the end. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is the creation of the heavens and the earth. Let's arch all the way back to the end, and you're going to see it mirrored. Revelation 21.5, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Fascinating, huh? Genesis chapter 2. The Eden sanctuary, the river that flowed out of Eden... And the tree of life, that's what's referenced in Genesis chapter 2. This tree of life and, and this, you know, this river that's flowing out that gives life. Revelation 21, chapter 9. The sanctuary is highlighting the sanctuary of the new Jerusalem. And the river that flows from the new Jerusalem and the new tree of life or the tree of life. Direct connection to Genesis. Genesis 2.18, the bridegroom, Adam, and the bride, Eve, and the wedding of Adam and Eve. Yeah, they were the first people to get married. I did not officiate that wedding. <laughs> I officiated a lot of weddings lately. I didn't do that one. But they were, that's pretty cool when, when God is actually your officiant, right? So that's a good one. I, I hope they paid him well. Revelation 19, the bride equals the church, and her bridegroom is Christ, the wedding of the Lamb. Very cool, huh? So what is, what is God doing here at the end of the book? He is redeeming that relationship, the original marriage, the very first wedding, that somebody, we won't name names, but somebody screwed it up. <laughs> Like they both screwed it up. I'm just, I'm just teasing you. I don't have time to get into that. That will be at the next marriage class. 
But it's redeemed right here in chapter 19, that relationship. Genesis 3, we have that serpent that is introduced for the first time. And then in Genesis, he's just known as a snake, a talking snake. And he tempts the woman. We know what happens there, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, mirrored against Revelation chapter 12, Satan and the woman, the new Eve. He redeems that situation. I got to go quick, but you can look that up. That's Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12. Genesis 3, uh, 14. It is the fall. What happens at the fall? Um, there's a curse. We prayed that the power of God would come and break bloodlines during ministry time. Like we need to do that often. Because there was a curse that took place that affected our ancestors. Our ancestors, every single one of us, have Adam and Eve as our grandparents. And they were cursed at this moment. Genesis 3 is the introduction of the curse. Revelation 22, the curse is abolished. It's wiped out. We don't, have to, we don't have to go to war over curses anymore. It is completely done at that moment. Genesis 3.19, death enters into creation. That's a weird thought, huh? Before Adam and Eve died, uh, sinned and fell, uh, there was no death as we know it. Like, I think that they were immortal. Pretty cool, huh? I don't have time to get into the weeds on that one. But I think that they were immortal. Like they were going to live, they, they had the ability to live forever. They were eating from the, the tree of life. Then they ate from the tree of knowledge, which became problematic. Revelation 20, verse 14. Death is literally destroyed. There is no more death. Genesis chapter 10, Babylon is built, this tower of Babel, this, this um, worshiping of man's in, uh, accomplishments, man's ingenuity, this desire for men to say, hey, we don't need God, we can do it all on our own. Maybe we'll go into agreement with evil forces that have power so that we can get something out of them. But if you want to boil sin down to one thing, it is the worship of man's own abilities to be their own gods. We will, men will go into agreement with evil to achieve that purpose. But its ultimate purpose is pride. The ability to say, I am my own God. Okay, I might have to sacrifice to Moloch. I might have to sacrifice to Baal. But I want to do whatever I want to do. And these guys are letting me do whatever I want to do. So that tower is built. And I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not God, but I think he was like, whoa, that happened quick. He's like, they organized awfully quickly. 
And if I allow them to continue on this trajectory, if I don't step in at this moment, like they're going to blow up the whole planet within a few years. And I think they probably actually literally could have done that. And so he, he confused the languages. He scattered the people so that they couldn't uh, build monuments to their own, own selves. They built this tower to actually... Uh, penetrate into heaven with the idea that we're going to go and kill God. That was their intention. Isn't that a crazy idea? Um, yeah, I got to be careful what I say these days, don't I? I'll just stop there. No, not, not today. Revelation 14, Babylon is destroyed. Not only is Babylon destroyed and the nations are judged once again. So he judged the nations when they built the tower. Like, oh my gosh, these guys, i got to scatter them. So he judged them at that moment. The final judgment's going to happen in Revelation 14. This happened at, um, there's a, an, a, a reference in the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 where God's people, Jesus has left the planet, He's, he uh, ascended, he hoverboarded right off the planet, he did not die again, amen? Jesus only died once, and so he just left the planet, and that body that left the planet is, is, is in heavenly places right now with the wounds from the crucifixion. Like nothing changed. So it's still there to this day. Jesus is still there. And when he left the planet, his followers and his disciples, I think that they were scared. Like they're just looking up at the bottom of his feet and thinking to themselves, now what are we going to do? And then, but do you remember what his instruction was? You need to wait upon the Holy Spirit. And so, for 40 days, God's faithful dedicated themselves to prayer. And because of that act of obedience, because they were in community together, praying together, and who knows what their prayer life was like, who knows how they were praying I don't know if it was intense or if, but they were consistent at it. Amen? They were consistent at it. I don't know if there is a right way or wrong way to pray with the exception of being consistent. And, and try not to whine. <laughs> just, just try not to whine too much when you pray. Yeah. And then something miraculous happens at the at, the Acts 2 church, and it's refer it, it, the reference is also here in this revelation, is that people, Jews, and maybe some Gentiles from all around the world, but mostly Jews, they'd pilgrimaged back to Jerusalem. And, you know, there are, it's kind of hard for us to understand, but there's different kinds of Jews. There's Ashkenazi Jews, there's our Orthodox Jews, there's Jews with dark skin, there's European-looking Jews, there's Asian-looking Jews. Like, the Jewish people 
are all ethnically the same person, but they're also very diverse in, in, in who they are and their expression because they have traded all over the world. And they all came back, and a lot of them spoke different languages. And the Spirit of God fell upon those that were faithful in prayer. And tongues like fire began to, to, to blaze up above their heads. I'm not quite sure what that looks like, but that's what the Word of God says. And then they all began to speak in a, in a new language. They began to what we call speaking in tongues. And every single language could understand it. It's the anti-Babylon. So where God scattered and confused the languages, when the Holy Spirit shows up and the King of Kings has his way, then there's unity and you can understand everybody. When we submit to the authority of God, he wants to bring us back together again. When we're not submitted to the authority of God, we must be scattered. Babylon is built in Genesis. Babylon is destroyed in Revelation. Really cool. In Genesis chapter 3, you know this verse, 3.15, the Redeemer is promised. So the curse takes place. And immediately at the fall, God comes up with another plan A. And it's pretty good. And it's called Jesus. And he says, oh, honey, we know that you messed up. We're talking about Eve and and then the guy too, whatever, him. And he said, he prophesies over Eve and, and her descendants. And he says, the enemy of God has struck your heel, but you're going to crush his head. Because you will bear the Savior. So right there, the very beginning, it's promised. In Revelation 20, 21 and 22, the victorious Redeemer reigns. Jesus is going to reign again. He's going, this is, this is the smashing of the serpent's head. Like it was prophesied, and these chapters show that it actually happens, and that's what we'll read today in detail. I had more cool stuff, but my computer doesn't work. Turn with me into Revelation chapter 19. Okay, see how it's all connected? It's all a part of the, the narrative. It's all a part of the story. It fulfills the story. And it tells us something very important from beginning to end. You know what it tells us? Is that God's in control. Yeah. He's got this thing. I mean, it might seem like the world is burning down around you, but God's got this thing. Amen. He's figured it out. He's figured out a redemptive path. Even if, like, you're, like, spacing out right now, you're not hearing a word I say, and you're going to leave church, and you're going to commit a sin upon all imaginable sins, and you're going to completely blow it, you know the Lord's got a way out for you? He's already got it ready. He's already got it in the wings. He's ready to save you from that situation. He's ready to save you from that choice. I think there's a lot of things that we can learn about Revelation. But in wrapping it up today, 
I want to show you the power of God. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ, about the end of days. You know, Revelation makes for good uh, storytelling and movie making. There's like some cool kaiju monsters in here. There's drama. It's just, it's just kind of cool. And we see in a snapshot how we are to live like Jesus. So Jesus is the spotless lamb that was slain. That's his position, that's his attitude, that's the attitude of his heart, is that he is the sacrificial lamb for the lost because he loves humanity. He loves all of mankind. The metaphor and the imagery is so fascinating. So not only do does Revelation depict Jesus as the pure and spotless lamb that was slain. They also depict Jesus as a warrior. Now, I am not saying that this is our call to to, um, become a militia. I don't think that... (laughs) You laugh. (laughs) You laugh, but uh, uh, you'd be surprised. That's... In all my heart and all my studies, I don't believe that the Lord would have us do that. We're to act like and be like Jesus. Would you agree? Amen. All right. So there's symbolism here. And yes, I support the Second Amendment, so don't get upset. (laughs) Church and politics, man. If I could... After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitutes who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Uh, We got this great prostitute, the whore of Babylon, that is just like really perverse, right? In contrast, in chapter 13, we have Mary, the mother of God. There's lots of contrasting imageries and, and truths here. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God. Okay, uh, raise your hand if you know what the four living creatures are. Oh, okay. Um, they're They're like these powerful angels that are constantly in the presence of God. This is a direct reference to um, Isaiah and and Ezekiel, thank you. Direct reference to them. So this is one of those lines that connects Revelation with with the Old Testament. And they are constantly in the presence of God doing exactly this, saying hallelujah, hallelujah, forever. And the 24 elders 
We're not quite sure who they are or what they are. We think they're humans. So maybe you're one of them. I doubt it. But maybe you're one of them. <laughs> anyway, sorry. There's all kinds of ideas on what that could be. I don't, I don't have time to get into that. Who fell down, they worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen and Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard a sound, what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord, our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We're the bride, by the way. Are you ready? Have you made yourself ready? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen standards for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet and I worshiped him. This is John. So he's having another moment with God here. But then he said to me, do not do it. John wants to worship an angel. Uh, Who are you supposed to worship? He's so enraptured. Like, John is wrecked. He has no idea what's going on. Like, it's too powerful for him to comprehend. So this angel corrects him. Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Did I say that again? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I want to encourage you to bear witness to the testimony of Jesus in your everyday life. You do that, you're going to be a nice little prophet. It's all about bearing witness to who Jesus is. Okay, I will go here. Despite what scientists and academics tell us, we are spiritual beings. Like there is something unique about human nature and the human condition that connects us upwards. All of us have a spiritual connection, even if you're not walking with the Lord. That's a a scary thought to think about, yeah? Even if you're not walking with the Lord, you are still wired spiritually. Now, um, determining on who's paying your electric bill determines on who you're serving. Does does that make sense? You are wired for power. You are wired for spiritual connection. But who you pay your bill to is very important. So just because you have a little bit of spiritual clairvoyance 
Meaning because we're spiritually wired, you might see things in the spirit. You might have certain abilities spiritually. But if you're not bearing witness to the testimony of Jesus, you're practicing witchcraft. This is a, this is a trap that even the best of Christians can fall into because, you know, oh, I've got a prophetic word for you. But if it doesn't bear witness to the testimony of Jesus, then like it could, it could possibly be a dangerous word from the Lord. Be careful about how you practice your spirituality. It, prophecy must bear witness to the testimony of Jesus and the individual. It has to be gospel. It has to, has to be gospel. Okay, enough of that. I saw heaven standing open there before me. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is the cover of your bulletin. Like this one little scripture here uh, prompted me to put a white horse on your bulletin for this whole series. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. I think we know who the rider is, amen? With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, authority. He has a name written on him that no one knows but him himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is like the word of of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which, makes, which strikes down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe... On his thigh, he has this name written on it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isn't that some powerful imagery? Like, this means that Jesus is going to win. Yeah? Like, his very words to the enemy of God are weapons. The enemy of God can't stand up to the logos, the the spoken word that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Can't compete. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to call upon the birds flying in midair, come and gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf with the signs that he had deluded 
those who he had deceived, the mark of the beast, and worshipped his image. You guys remember last week? Okay. There's that image of the beast again. The two of them were thrown alive into the fire, in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the, of the rider of the horse. And all the, the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Okay, that's pretty graphic and like, whoa, what is going on? Literal? In spiritual dimensions, yes, literal. God's going to win. Jesus is going to conquer evil. And it's going to be dramatic. And it's going to be powerful. And at least spiritually speaking, it's going to be bloody. But Jesus is going to win. Now, the reason why I picked the white horse as your cover is because it symbolizes something very important for us as the believer. Jesus, God himself, is riding upon this white horse. What is the white horse? It's not Jesus. It's, it's not God. It's not the Holy Spirit. But what it symbolizes is the power of God. It is the movement, the mobility, the acceleration of something extremely powerful. And Jesus is in complete control of this. He is riding this horse, and he's riding it fast. And it comes like thunder. It is just, it's an image that we can't quite comprehend or understand. Okay, now listen to me clearly. We are not and never will be gods. Do you hear the words coming out of my mouth? We are not and never will be gods. There is only, there's only one begotten Son of God. Who's that? Jesus, right? That is constant. Now, here's what, here's what I... Okay, that's theologically correct, correct? We will never be gods. We weren't born gods. You're not your own god. Um, it's new age stuff. Now, what the scripture is clear about is that we are called sons and daughters of God Almighty. We, are, we have been adopted by Him. And although there are many that will come to claim, they will claim to be Jesus Christ. We're even seeing it now. We, we, we saw it in the past. We saw it in the 60s. It happened in the first century when Jesus was around. There are many who are going to claim to be divine. They're going to literally claim to be Jesus Christ. They're all crazy. Jesus is returning to us in the cloud. He's not going to be born of man. Not again. He's not going to uh, reincarnate, okay? There's only one Jesus. And yet, we have been called to be Christ-like, 
to bear his image, to act like him, to be like him. And what Jesus is, what he does, he says, um, I want you to do the things that, that I do and that I did when I was here on the planet. You will do these things. And what's mind-boggling, which is, this shows you the heart of a good father, is that he says, I want you to do the th- these things and even more. I want you to display a greater amount of power on the planet than I performed when I was here for 33 years. That one's tough. I don't think we've quite reached that far yet. But that's what good dads do, right? I want my daughter to be better than I am. Our our prayer, our conversations that Mako and I have, and when we talk to Sophia, it's like, okay, Sophia, you need to pick out the best attributes of dad and the best attributes of mom, and you need to embrace that with all of your heart and all of the negative things that we do. You need to cast those things aside. We want you to, Sophia, we want you to be better than us. That's what good parents do. It's kind of weird when you see a dysfunctional parent like, a, like uh, jealous of their own child, children's success. You, you see that quite often, actually. It's weird. The power of God symbolized in this horse, this vehicle of power. Do you know what? If you have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, you get to ride. You get to, now you're not going to ride this literal white horse that Jesus is riding. That's the power of God assigned specifically to this situation. But you have access to the power of God. And it is more intense than you think. It is more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And so, I want to invite you to hop up on this horse, up on the power of God, not your own power, not your own abilities. I want you to quit wallowing in the muck and the mire. You need to get up on this steed, and you need to ride, and you need to ride hard. The power of God is just waiting for you to hop on. When I was a boy, we were, we were a horse family. We're horse people out in Rancho Cucamonga, Alta Loma specifically. There's a difference. <laughs> and my parents back in the old church days there was this family that had this evil pony and so they they blessed us with a pony and so i got to you know ride all the time on this really evil shetland pony and she was bad she was super smart she had the intelligence of like a first grader and she'd escape, and if you weren't paying attention, she'd bite you in the back. She was horrible. But um, now she is holding together books and, uh, and kids' crafts. So. <laughs> okay. And then I, I, once I got control of that beast, my, my parents bought me a quarter horse. And I actually helped pay for it because I did chores and stuff, and I helped save up. So we bought this quarter horse. They wouldn't buy me a motorcycle because those are dangerous. <laughs> but they bought me a quarter horse. And I took that thing out as hard as I could because the pony wasn't powerful enough for me anymore. She wasn't fast enough for me anymore. So I got something a little wilder, something a little more powerful. 
I had so much fun. And I had this neighbor, and if you heard this story before, I'm sorry. I had this neighbor, and he was a real horse person. He was also a gambler. And he'd bought himself a thoroughbred racehorse. I don't know what Sam was thinking, but he let me ride that thing. And I was nine years old. I know, what? And I'm thinking, I approached this, this beast, this racehorse, this thoroughbred, like I did my quarter horse. Uh, this was a different animal altogether. The amount of power and the amount of speed on this thing I, was scary to me. She ran so fast. She was trained to run fast. I couldn't stay on her. She didn't even bother trying to kick me off. There was no bucking. There was no backbiting. There was no naughty behavior. This thing was bred to run. And it ran so hard, so fast, so powerful that I couldn't stay on. When I came to, <laughs> I uh, took the long walk back to Sam's house, rang the doorbell, he opens up, <laughs> I'll never forget his face, his eyes got like big as saucers, and it wasn't like, hey, where's my horse? He's like, oh my gosh, your mom's going to kill me. <laughs> that was, and so he brought me in. I had no idea, but my whole face was just covered in blood. And he sat me down, and he got, uh, got tweezers and started picking asphalt out of my face. <laughs> that's, how, that's how powerful this horse was. That's how fast we were going. I'm not quite sure how fast we were going, but I couldn't handle it. Do you know what the most popular word in the scriptures are? The word that gets repeated the most? You know, think about that hyperlink thing. So just think about which word do you think gets repeated the most and out of all scripture? No, not money. <laughs> not love. Not power. No, not fear. God's close. Specific, not worship, not grace, not hope. No. All right. You guys failed. <laughs> All right, you ready for this? This is going to be Israel. Israel is the most repeated word in all Scripture. Israel was one of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name translates to, uh, I'm going to paraphrase on my behalf, but sneaky little lying heel grabber. Mama's boy, you know, somebody you'd want to beat up. That's his name, heel grabber, because he was, anyway, read the book. And God literally changes his identity. 
and changes his name from Jacob, from heel grabber to liar, to Israel. Israel. And that... Okay, anyone want to take a stab? And if you know, don't say. But anyone want to take a stab at what that translates to? No. <laughs> no? Okay. Israel translates into the one who strives with, struggles with, wrestles with God. So... Isn't that a fascinating uh, definition of God's people, people that strive with, contend with, wrestle with God? How many of you wrestled with God? How'd you do? Did you win? Nope. Look, I actually think that there's something important to that wrestle with God, striving with God, contending with God, trying to figure out what God's all about, Um, dancing with God. It's a little bit of a dance. You have to, uh, my gosh, this is going to sound terrible, but you have to play the game. Like you have to go after God. You have to wrestle with him with your own issues. Abraham, the first patriarch, literally wrestled with God all night long. He said at first it was an angel. First he thought he was fighting an angel, and then it turned out to be the Lord. They fought all night long. I wonder what Abraham was arguing with God about. Oh, God, why did you make me move from my comfortable place? Oh, God, how come, I, how come my wife is so crabby? Oh, God, how, <laughs> how come I can't have any kids? I mean, oh, God, why am I, you know, why am I starving to death? I mean, I'm sure he was arguing about a lot of different things all night long until the power of God set him straight by touching his hip and blowing his hip out. It was just a tiny little touch, and it blew his hip out. And for the rest of his life, Abraham walked with a limp. If you're going to experience the power of God, you have to learn how to walk with a limp. Oh, I'm sorry, Jacob. I said Abraham, didn't I? Yeah, that's right. Because Jacob's, Jacob's the one that wrestles with God. That's where, the, that's where the definition of the name comes from. Sorry. Thank you. Now, God is calling you up upon his horse, the power of God. You're not God, but he's invited everybody to play. You're not Jesus, you're not the savior of the world, but he wants to use you as his hands and feet to make a difference, to have purpose. Some of you are far from God. Some of you are estranged from God. Some of you are apathetic. Some of you have leveled off at a certain power level and need to trade in your horse. Does that make sense? You need to power up. You need to power up a level. You need to quit riding ponies and start riding thoroughbreds. All right. I'm going to show you the dance. 
Uh, Crystal, we'll, we'll do both videos and just hang with me. Because I'm taking a risk here, but I think it's going to, I think that that's what God wants. Let's bring the lights down. Oh, and I know this is not a white horse, but use your imagination. This is the dance. This is offering. worship.
Let's go to the next video. Let's go to the ride. This one. This one. If I could have Sophia and the band come on up. Lord wants you to live a powerful life. You have to get on that horse in order to live a powerful life. In order for you to get on that horse, you've got to get into the water and go deep. 
A lot of us just kind of get stuck hugging the horse on the shore and looking at the sunset. But if you want to ride with Jesus in victory, you got to have more power. And if you fall off, you got to get back on. And if the ride isn't scary, I got some bad news for you. You're not on the ride. <laughs> so it is. Jesus is coming again on a white horse, a horse of victory, a horse of power. Nothing that this world can throw at him and at his church will deter him. He's too fast. He's too powerful. He can break through any walls and any hardships. Jesus is all you need. And the power of the Holy Spirit will propel you through anything. So let's just go deep. We get relational. You know, <laughs> what I love about this clip is that it's not the boy that's taming the horse. It's the horse that's taming the boy. The horse is teaching the boy how to be free. And so let's just do that. Let's choose freedom and let's choose power. This is the body of Christ, which was broken for you. You have the opportunity to be a part of the body of Christ. Everything that you need is locked up into this bread from heaven. And you don't have to fear anymore when you are a part of his body. Deserts won't shake you. Storms won't shake you. Evil won't shake you. Confidence is in this. Receive the body of Christ. In order to worship in spirit and in truth, we have to do business with God. And this is how we do business with God. In order to enter into his presence and have those moments of love and affection from the Lord and love and affection from the body of Christ, we've got to quit focusing on our failures and our sins and our dysfunctions. We need to quit looking at those things and we need to look at the face of Jesus. And this is the only thing that wipes away all of that stuff so that we can have a clear view of the face of the Lord. Receive the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If I could have the ushers come to the front. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are in this place, pouring out your spirit upon us not only to break strongholds and generational curses, but to give us power and counsel and authority in dark times. Jesus, we thank you for your friendship and your kindness. And God the Father, even though at times you scare us, we are in awe of you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Make us wise. God bless you as you return your offerings to the Lord. There's no shadow you won't
So may the God of peace, God himself, bless you through and through. May your whole body, soul, and mind be free from the curses of the enemy this week. The Lord who has called you to his power, he will be faithful to the very end until the coming of Jesus Christ. God bless you guys. Have a powerful week.